now for the last several talks throughout this entire, it's really the Claim Your Freedom series, I've addressed soul wounds that are primarily mental, which is your mindset, or they're emotional, they're our feelings. But there's another area that we really haven't spoken about, namely our spiritual health, that's our faith. In the same way our emotions can be broken, so also can the unique connection between our soul and our spirit be wounded as well. And I guess the best way to explain it may be by just illustrating it with a story. Uh, Washington Booker III, he's one of the warriors that's featured in the documentary Honoring the Code. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes, and I'll explain more about the documentary in just a bit. Uh, Booker, as, as we call him, was a U.S. Marine Corps sniper during the Vietnam War. And when he was interviewed for that film that has to do with this concept called moral injury, he said boot camp actually came and it altered his definition of what it meant to be human. At least it altered that definition for, for the moment. He said, when you show up for boot camp and you go into infantry training school, they constantly drill into you that your job is to close in and kill the enemy. He reminded us that there's a tension you feel because this is just really kind of quoting what he said in, in my words. When you begin, killing is not normal to you. They turn it into something else and they make it acceptable. They, they run you until you're tired and almost fall out and then you yourself begin saying, kill, kill, kill. You begin to cheer for something that you were once adamantly against. Now, more relevant to our discussion about overall wholeness, Booker told a story from the battlefield. He, he reported this. He said, I was a sniper. During a battle, I killed an NVA. That's, that's a Viet Cong. That's the enemy lieutenant. It was about 4 o'clock or 5 o'clock in the morning when they hit us, and I shot and remembered where he fell. Now, notice what he said. Um, in the same way a hunter makes a mental notice to where the deer or bird fell so that he can later collect it, Booker marked where his target died. And he, and he tells us on video, he says why. He said, so I could go search the body for souvenirs after the battle. Now that battle had raged most of the day, then late in the afternoon, well after the U.S. forces pushed the Viet Cong troops back, Booker looped back to check the body. I checked his belt, and I took his weapon, he said, and then I opened his wallet. Now remembering what he saw next, Booker reminisced, he said there, there were some pictures in there, um, pr probably someplace in North Vietnam, and those pictures were him, a woman, and some children. I knew then that they were his wife and kids. Those few seconds changed him. At boot camp, killing became acceptable and encouraged, but yet it no longer felt that way. The pendulum jerked back into the opposite direction. An invisible wave of regret crashed over him, submerging him amidst his thoughts as he stood there on the battlefield. Booker revealed, that very second, the man I killed became a human, not a combatant, he was no longer some evil force moving along ridgelines or shadows. He became a person. His wife and his kid were now somewhere crying. Needless to say, I never searched another body. Now, again, if you follow me on social media or you've listened to some of these podcasts, you know that I wrote a book and created a course for veterans who struggle with the invisible scars of war. I did so in partnership with a nonprofit known as Crosswinds. That's how I got introduced to Booker and his story. Uh, my friend Bob Waldrop, he founded the organization over a decade ago. And shortly thereafter, as an overflow of some of the projects he found himself and his new organization were involved in, they launched Front Porch Media and Entertainment. That's the name of their group, Front Porch Media and Entertainment. They did that in 2012. 
His goal was to better utilize film as a means of serving others. Now it became apparent that the first full-length feature needed to focus on the facet of his organization that focused on public policy and military service, specifically by creating a documentary aimed at helping military personnel who were suffering with mental and emotional trauma, uh, PTSD, as a result of their deployment, their combat experience, or separation from family members who had been deployed. So the nonprofit released the first film, Invisible Scars, in 2014, and it immediately gained really widespread grassroots distribution, largely by word of mouth. Uh, DVDs of the film were passed from person to person uh, through generous donors. They were provided free to veterans and their families. 40,000 of them were given away just in the first few years. And even today, I'm working on projects with Crosswinds. When I'm in the offices, every single day, people call in or write in or email wanting a DVD of that film, even though they can also stream it online totally free. I'll put a link to that film in the show notes where you can grab it. Now, um, that accidental method of mass distribution, it created a relational connection uh, between the organization and government agencies and service providers and current and former soldiers. Here's where it gets really interesting, though. When you film a documentary, you really have an idea of where the film will most likely take you, but you also remain open to the possibilities that it might take a turn that you don't expect. So it could lead you somewhere else completely. Um, As an example, Icarus, that's the documentary which won an Academy Award for the Best Documentary Feature last year. It's a prime example. I I streamed the film on Netflix one evening and was really surprised, shocked, at the radical turn that it took during the film. That film, it began as a study in illegal sports doping. The filmmaker, he wanted to know if he could improve his performance with drugs. And along the way, he connected with a Russian scientist who became a trusted friend, a friend who later revealed that he ran a state-sponsored doping program for the Russians. The result of that was no longer a film about, hey, will performance-enhancing drugs improve my cycling, just to see if he could get away with it and film it. It turned into a full-fledged, totally filmed whistleblow on the Soviet's Olympic doping program. Okay, no one, particularly the filmmaker, nobody saw that coming. Now, in some sense, this is the sort of plot twist that happened with Invisible Scars, except for it was completely above board and everything in it was honest. Uh, Bob and his team thought that they were just creating a documentary about PTSD. Along the way, though, they continued bumping into something known as moral injury. Um, Here's just a quote like one of the professionals said, it looks like PTSD at first glance. I mean, we heard that from oh, so many professionals, but the same treatment protocols don't work. It's clearly not PTSD. And then another one would say something like, if you treat it like PTSD, it, things don't get better. You've got to do something else. Uh, others would say something like, um, sometimes you find them together, both PTSD and moral injury, but they're different. Now, moral injury, it looks like PTSD at first glance because the symptoms, those are the externals. Uh, that's, that's the fruit, to use a term I used several talks ago. They manifest 
in similar common expressions. So, uh, for instance, in the show notes, I've got a graphic there that just has uh, moral injury, a big circle on one side, and it talks about how it is laced with guilt and shame. And then on the other side of the graphic, it has PTSD and talks about how that really is a fight and flight issue. And then in the middle, there's this overlap of common symptoms. Like with both of them, you might experience anger, anxiety, depression, insomnia, uh, nightmares, self-medication, or even withdrawal. But the fruit looks the same. The roots are very different. And so, again, uh, as we discussed when we talked about addiction several talks ago, you can't just pull off the fruit. You've got to get to the root. If you don't get to the root, and if you chase down the wrong root, the fruit will continue uh, to, to emerge. So that's a graphic for you in the show notes. Now, in-depth interviews with soldiers, uh, with family members, with additional professionals, they all revealed what, what they kept hearing to be true, uh, or what they thought was true, was true, that it's different than PTSD, and moral injury is a real issue that's, that's not only real, it's deep. So in time, and with a lot of conversation, it became apparent that a follow-up film was needed. So in 2016, two years later, Crosswinds released the film Honoring the Code, a film which addresses issues of moral injury. Now, you might not have heard of moral injury. Uh, we'll talk about it a little bit here. Uh, you probably heard about survivor's guilt. That was in the film as well. Here, here's the short version. Moral injury most often occurs when your conscience is violated. Okay. Moral injury occurs when your conscience is violated. Think back to Dr. Perkis's three facts about human nature. That was, I think it was talk number five about the self-protective self that we discussed in this whole Claim Your Freedom series. Fact number one was this. We're designed to explore and grow. Fact number two was as we explore, we bump into things which cause us pain. Pain being something we totally want to avoid. So fact number three is we create internal rules, often subconsciously, to help us manage the tension between that fact number one, exploration, and the fact number two, wanting uh, to avoid the pain that we continue bumping into. Now, it, it turns out there's a human code that's hardwired into, it's into the vast majority of us. Often it's a set of subconscious rules. So th this would be um, more kind of fact number three. C.S. Lewis, he was an English professor who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He likened that to a moral compass. Uh, theologians refer to this as the image of God, or they, they call it a law that's written on our hearts. Whatever you call it, there are certain rules that are common across all cultures, all people groups, across virtually all times and places in history. So everyone knows subconsciously, without even being taught, things like murder is wrong, uh, lying, cheating, and stealing aren't right, uh, rape and sexual assault are unacceptable. Um, even this one, men should defer to and honor women, children, and the elderly. No, no matter how uh, crazy our society gets, all of these things tend to be acceptable. In, in, in other words, uh, not only acceptable, expected. We come hardwired with a set of rules, and when we break those rules, even if we've never been told not to, we feel this deep internal unrest. We feel pain. We feel, I would even say, broken. And you could say, well, why is that? Well, it's because each of us have a conscience which actively communicates with us, and that conscience connects to the richest, deepest, fullest part of us, which is our spirit. 
Now, let, let me talk about conscience a second. Uh, Webster's Dictionary defines conscience as this. It's just quoting it. The sense of consciousness, so it's awareness, of the moral goodness or blameworthiness of one's own conduct, one's own intentions, or character, together with a feeling of, or obligation to do right or good. So in general, here's how that conscience affects people. Uh, if you know to do right but do the opposite, the result might be a guilty conscience. Uh, if you know right but observe someone else do the opposite, so you, you know what's right, you see someone else do wrong, and you don't try to stop it, the result may still be a guilty conscience even though you didn't do it. Uh, if you do what's right, the result should be a clear conscience. In other words, if you put a gag on the voice of do right, because your your conscience, your moral compass is bent towards, it naturally leans towards doing right. If you put a gag on that, you'll most likely experience a sense of guilt, e even if you have no choice in the moment but to remain silent. And sometimes that's a misplaced guilt as the wrong that's committed is not even your fault. It, it could be even something someone else did, or it could be something that was done to you, or it might even be something that wasn't actually even wrong. Now, some people think of conscience as an inner voice that helps them distinguish between right from wrong, uh, like a moral compass, like we discussed. Others believe it springs forth from our inner being, from a soul or a spirit. They give it more of a religious or spiritual connection. Uh, you've even seen it most likely depicted in cartoons as an angel and a devil with one sitting on one shoulder of the person, whispering in an ear. The angel says, do right. The devil's on the other shoulder. It says, do wrong. One of the professionals featured in the film Honoring the Code, Dr. Rita Brock, she offers some amazing insight on this. She says to better understand the issue, you just consider the causes of moral injury. And she identifies really two. She says, number one, uh, violating or going against one's core moral beliefs, one's conscience. So this might be a personal choice. Or here's how it came up in war, as is the case of soldiers often experiencing uh, it's something demanded or ordered by someone in authority. Uh, number two could be evaluating your own behavior negatively to the extent that this person no longer thinks of themselves as a decent human being. Now, notice that second point. PTSD most often occurs when a person experiences, witness, or encounters a traumatic event. Uh, and, and although PTSD, if, if it's undiagnosed, makes us feel uneasy, the issue still remains out there. We can separate ourselves from it because PTSD is manifesting as a fight or flight. There's an external threat and we either fight against it or we take flight from it. We can separate ourselves from it. Moral injury, on the other hand, it becomes so entwined in the soul that we begin questioning our decency as humans. Here's what Rita Brock said again. We evaluate our behavior, our actions negatively to the extent that we no longer think of ourselves as a decent human being when we're suffering from moral injury. The expression of PTSD and moral injury is different. Um, again, maybe some review here. Whereas PTSD creates a fight or flight response, okay, you attack the issue that's out there or you run away from it, moral injury manifests as this overwhelming feeling of guilt or shame. You've probably heard the saying, wherever you go, there you are. When the issue is in you, like it's your conscience, you can't fight or you can't run from it. It remains present at all times. 
Now, earlier in this series of talks, I talked about perception and reality and how PTSD or any emotional trauma, it affects both our mindset and our emotions, uh, where you think one thing is happening in the present based on past experience, and sometimes you react inappropriately. Moral injury, it's really different. Whereas PTSD primarily deals with our mind and our emotions, moral injury deals with our mind and our spirit. So let me, let me say that again. PTSD primarily deals with our mind and our emotions, so you feel certain things. Moral injury primarily deals with our mind and our spirit. Now let me be clear. Our emotions can be involved with moral injury and our spirits can be involved with PTSD. These are all parts of the soul. Anything having to do with any part of us can affect every part of us. Um, it, and I've got some graphics though that will you'll you can see this in the show notes where it just kind of outlines the difference. But when I was teaching this to a group of warriors, one of the women, uh, you know, she raised her hand so politely and she said, "I've got a great illustration that may help you understand this." It seems like this: if we have a pond, and we are that pond, you toss a rock into that pond, and say one section of the pond is uh, the the your body, your physical body. Another section of the pond is your emotions. Another section of the pond is your mind. Another section of the pond is your soul or your spirit. Or you, you get the idea. It's all different parts. That rock may hit, that injury may hit one area, but it's going to cause ripple effects depending on the size of the rock that will ripple out and touch and affect other areas. And it's a beautiful illustration because the injury could come into your body and it may affect your emotions. Or it could just come into your emotions. And we discussed last episode, it could make you feel sick or tired or sluggish. So all of these areas are connected. But PTSD and moral injury, they're very similar. But I want to highlight in this discussion the difference that PTSD, and again, lots of pictures in the show notes, fight or flight, moral injury, feelings, of guilt or shame. Here's why I want to highlight the difference. Since PTSD and moral injury are two different issues, they must be addressed in a much different manner. PTSD must be addressed as being primarily mental and emotional and moral injury. Again, though it may have that emotional component, it's basically moral or spiritual because it's guilt and shame based on your conscience being violated and these feelings of unworthiness that that, that come along. Uh, a couple weeks ago, in one of the talks, I told you about a first responder friend who, by his own admission, he carried this weight of survivor's guilt. I remember the the friend who trained him uh, died in the line of duty one day when this friend was off um, from work. And he, he said, it, it messed with me. It messed me up. I should have been there to stop it, or it should have been me. As I was listening to him talk, again, in that conversation with... Uh, the vet, veteran from the Iraq War and the state trooper, is he's speaking about his feelings and everything related to the loss of that close co-worker, he described to me tangible guilt and unworthiness. In my opinion, he wasn't dealing with PTSD. He was sorting through moral injury. Okay, Whereas PTSD elicits the fight-or-flight response, moral injury is accompanied by a sense of guilt or shame. So what I want to do is just really separate the concepts of guilt, what we do, and shame who we are, and maybe unpack moral injury even more because all of this is related, but it helps explain why why moral injury can be incredibly devastating. Here, here's the difference. Uh, whereas guilt focuses on actions, what we do, shame declares identity, who we are. And people can repent of actions. Sometimes you and I should feel guilty. We do things wrong. 
and we should quickly repent, change, and move in the opposite direction. The problem is you can't repent of identity. When you have guilt, it's an action, what you do, shame, identity, who you are, it becomes tricky. Um, An identity change requires that you rewrite the script of your life. You change the character. You recast the character. Um, You've got to address the root causes rather than the fruit symptoms. Again, I'll put the graphic of all of this in the show notes where you can really read the text. You can look at it as you listen, and then you can unpack this. Here's the strange thing about moral injury. Everywhere I talk about it, as many people are more resonate with it than they do PTSD. And, and by that, I mean this. Like, here's maybe just three points. In the same way that most of us are not diagnosable with PTSD, understanding what PTSD is, it helps us navigate our own emotional wounds. Most of us don't have moral injury, but we do struggle with feelings of guilt and shame. That means that we see something tangible that we can connect with, uh, even though. Uh, what we see, sense, or feel in our own lives might not be as extreme as the full-blown psychological condition, but seeing that outlier, it provides language whereby we can understand our own experience, and then based on what we learn, we find ourselves more equipped to step towards overall health. The goal remains not to receive or reject a diagnosis either way. The goal remains to live whole. Um, by the way, no one can currently be diagnosed with moral injury. It's not included in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, uh, which is the basis for receiving any diagnosis psychologically. Um, but again, remember, our goal is not to get diagnosed, nor is it to avoid a diagnosis. Uh, my goal and your goal is to walk in health, and that means we want to define where we are so that we can then move to where we're designed to be and take that journey. Now, that said, go back to the story where I began this entire talk uh, with Booker Washington. You probably don't have a story like Booker's. Few few people do. Your story may be something like this. A a few years ago, I met a friend for coffee every Tuesday evening at 8.30 p.m. It was right after we tucked our small kids into bed and had a quick time to make a drive to the nearby Starbucks. It was really a weekly one-to-one small group, uh, for lack of a better term. Uh, One evening, he told me he needed to get something off his chest. It was something he had done a long time ago, something he had never told anyone, not even his wife. What's up, I asked. A few years ago, I... It took him a while to say it, but then he he filled in the blank completely, uh, telling me in a few short paragraphs the situation, the sin, and the stranglehold which that secret held on him since the event first happened. Now, I thought about it for a moment, and then I looked at him. Is that it? Is that what you've been carrying? I had, in my mind, I'd expected more, well, really, way more, a bigger reveal. I mean, what he told me wasn't a small issue. It was significant, but the shame that he expressed was disproportional, and it was outweighing the guilt of what he'd actually done. In that moment, I learned two things. The first one is this. The power of hidden secrets grows exponentially the longer that we keep them deadbolted behind closed doors. No matter how big they are and no matter how much we fear sharing them, the sooner we release them, the easier. Uh, The second point is this. The second observation is like we discussed with emotional wounds. The size and the scope of the sin or the issue is often in the eyes of the beholder. Now, don't misunderstand me. Wrong is wrong, but for various reasons, it always affects each of us differently. In the end, 
here's here's probably the reality of it is comparing one person's moral high ground to another person's low ground is a lot like comparing the summit of Mount Everest to the abyss of the Pacific okay and that seems like a very big difference when you're standing on planet Earth but it's like comparing those discrepancies while you're standing on the moon um, the other day I heard that the surface of the moon is proportionally to its size smoother than an eight ball okay and, and though the differences look radically disparate from here grace hills all of them so whereas we view sin and issues with morality like some are big and some are small and, and don't get me wrong like the crazy thing about talking through this is, uh, is i'm thinking goodness some issues are huge and some are tiny the reality is from heaven's view from overhead from the view of redemption and from the review of what grace and reconciliation and restoration can do with someone who's wanting that the view and the cure is all the same. So I looked at my friend that day and I told him, I said, man, I'm so sorry that you've been weighted by this. That was then. You're free from it. I, I know who you really are. God forgives you. He's forgiven you. Past tense. Set it down. Don't pick it back up. I think I can now, he said. And then he added this. It seemed bigger when it was inside of me. It seemed much bigger. Now, now again, don't get me wrong. It wasn't a trite little thing that he revealed. It's just that, I mean, in his words, he actually said this, I guess I needed to let that skeleton out of the closet. He seemed scary when he was in there. It turns out this whole time, he was just bones leaning up against that closed door, threatening to come out and pounce me. I listened for a moment. It was really soaking my friend's words. At that point, I had secrets too. He continued, I just opened the door to you, afraid of what the skeleton would do to me when he did, but he didn't do anything. He just fell out and collapsed on the floor. He didn't have any strength at all. No, I replied. It really is if to coach myself about releasing my own skeletons, about yanking them out of the closets where I'd shove them away out of sight, but not out of mind. That's the trick with skeletons. They're out of sight in the closet, but they're not out of mind. And then I told him, skeletons don't have much muscle. Again, almost as if to coach myself. No voice either, so they can't accuse. And then he filled in the blank. It was this beautiful exchange. They can't stand up and do anything on their own. I added, we're afraid of the light until we actually get there, and then we find it's the safest, easiest, most life-giving place to be. Yeah, it's scary, but it's safe. The, the problem, of course, is that it can seem like a long way to get there. Where flipping a light switch on in your home instantly pushes all the dark away, virtually eliminating all the shadows in a moment and confirming that no monsters live in the closet, under the bed, or any other tucked away place. Flipping the light on in life seems more like a process. And here's why, and this is going to lead us really to the subject of the next talk. Here's why we don't want to flip on the light. Fear. That's right. Fear. We become afraid of what's going to happen if we get our junk out in the light, just like my friend had, just like I did. Again, even if the light is the safest place to be, it's also the most vulnerable and frightening. Our timidity about being exposed has to do not only with what we've experienced, but also who we think we are and who others will think we are because of what we've done, what was done to us, or the good that we failed to do. Let's pause. Let's stop right there. In the next episode, I will talk to you about the all-too-uncommon cure that is so incredibly powerful and simple. For now, here's what I want to do is just pray that the Lord bless you. 
that the Lord keep you, that the Lord be gracious and shine his face of favor upon you, that as the scripture says, in him was life and the life was the light of all men and women. And my prayer is just that that light, it begins shining even now into the dark, deep places that you see that from heaven's view, goodness, that the, the surface of the earth that we're on, the highs and the lows and the depths, that it is uh, proportionally smoother than the eight ball. And that the sin that seems so big and the good deeds and the sins that seem so small and everything that seem oh so in between, that from the perspective of redemption and grace and freedom and healing from your Heavenly Father's perspective, from the kingdom perspective, that it is all easy, that it is all done and may the light shine and bring healing, grace, peace. And until next time, shalom.